0: Bible. We're in Luke chapter 20. As I said a minute ago, we are with Jesus in the lead-up to the cross in this Easter season. Last week Jesus arrived in Jerusalem and he's come as king and he's entered the temple and uh, he is confronting the world, in particular the religious leaders of the day. And so we're picking it up tonight at Luke chapter 20 verse 19 and we'll read through to chapter 21 verse 4. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Listen to him. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest Jesus immediately because they knew he had spoken that parable against them. But they were afraid of the people so keeping a close watch on him they sent spies who pretended to be sincere they hoped to catch jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor so the spies questioned him teacher we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality but teach the way god the the way of god in accordance with the, the truth is it right for us to pay taxes to caesar Or not. He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. First one married a woman and died childless. The second one and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? since the seven were married to her. Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher! And no one dared to ask him any more questions. Then Jesus said to them, Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces "'and have the most important seats in the synagogues "'and the places of honour at the banquets. "'They devour widows' houses "'and for a show make lengthy prayers. "'These men will be punished most severely.' "'As Jesus looked up, "'he saw the rich putting their gifts "'into the temple treasury. "'He also saw a poor widow "'put in two very small copper coins. "'Truly I tell you,' he said, "'this poor widow has put in more than all the others.' All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. She, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. My voice is struggling tonight, so apologies for that. Um, uh, Back in the day when I was in high school, we had a big football game coming up. There was a guy in our team who was kind of known for being all talk. He kind of talked the talk, but he couldn't walk the walk. He had a big personality, he had a big reputation. Uh, he was known as a bit of a tough guy. And in the few weeks leading up to our big game, he went on and on and on about what he was going to do in this game, how he was going to dominate, basically how he was going to single-handedly win the game for us, you know? talking about how reliant we were on him. He was so confident in himself. He was so confident in himself. He was so focused on his own image and what people thought about him that actually in the few weeks before the game, he didn't even come to training. That's how confident he was. And so what everyone else on the team knew that he didn't know was that the coach wasn't going to let him play. In fact, the coach wasn't even going to let him sit on the bench. His boots wouldn't even cross the white line onto the field. He would end up in the stands as a spectator. And I don't even know if he... He probably didn't even stay and watch the game, right? He was so confident in himself. He was so... he, He thought that we were so reliant on him he was so focused on his image and what people thought of him that he missed the whole point of the game and the game entirely, right? And I thought of this guy during the week because I feel like Jesus confronting the religious leaders of the day when he enters the Jerusalem temple before his death and resurrection, it was a bit like that guy. They talked about the game. They seemed to have great confidence in their skills and in their contribution to the game, they were so focused on their own image and what other people thought of them and the talk of the game that they forgot what the whole game is all about. And so when the king of God's kingdom arrives to his temple, they miss the point altogether. And here's the thing with Jesus, if you miss Jesus, it's so much more than just missing a football game. Who cares if you miss a football game? Getting Jesus wrong and misunderstanding the game and missing what life is all about because you've missed what Jesus is all about. Well, that doesn't just put at stake uh, participating in a football game, that puts at stake participating in the eternal life that Jesus' kingdom is all about and that he came to give us. Uh, Jesus is confronting the religious leaders of the day Uh, warning them uh, about what his authority means, warning them of what it looks like to reject him as the saviour king that he truly is and it's a challenge for you and me today I think to not be so focused on our own image and our own contribution and what other people think of us Not to be so focused on the realities that we see all around us, the things right in front of us, that we miss the whole point of life and eternity and everything. It's interesting as Jesus arrives at the temple, it's as if that his trial before his death begins right away. Soon he'll come before Pontius Pilate and we will be put on trial for his life. But here it's like the trial has already begun and it's like they're putting Jesus in the dock and they're pushing him on the questions of God's kingdom and of God's character and of God's promises, thinking that they can trap him, thinking that they can convict him, thinking that they can prove him wrong because they're so sure of themselves. But Jesus, as he so often does, he turns the tables on them, not like just what he did last week when he literally flipped the tables in the temple and drove the money changers out of the courts. But Jesus kind of metaphorically flips the tables on them when he, as it were, confronts them. And as they seek to put him on trial and and pin him with questions, he turns it back to them. And I wonder if he does the same for us, sitting here 2,000 years later. Too often we like to come to Jesus, we want him to answer our questions. We want him to prove himself for us. We want him to meet our needs. We want him to be the Saviour King that, that we design him to be. And I wonder if we can let Jesus put us in the dock tonight. Let Jesus confront us and put us on trial as it were and instead of us coming to Jesus with the demands for him to answer our questions whether his questions might land at our feet that we might be pushed and challenged to answer the questions that Jesus has and what we're going to do with him of how we view him, of how we're going to respond to him of what we view him to be And whether what we think of Jesus lines up with what he thinks of himself. That's my challenge for you tonight, not to come to Jesus putting him on trial, demanding from him that he meet you where you're at and that you that he answer your questions, but that you answer his. These are the four questions that I want us to be confronted with tonight from this passage. Four questions. Who do you honour? To which age do you belong? Who do you call Lord? And will you genuinely serve the Saviour King? Beck, can you just shut those two doors so I don't get annoyed by the air conditioner in there? Thank you. All right, there are four questions that we're going to tackle together. First one is who do you honour? Let's pick it up at chapter 20 verse 19 where we ended off last week and the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest Jesus immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them but they were afraid of the people so keeping on a close watch on him they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. You can see it right they're here to trap him. They want to catch him out. They're here to set the trap and they think that they've got him. So these people come to him with questions which aren't the kind of questions that I hope you ask of Jesus, which are genuine questions where you're trying to work out life and work out Jesus and work out yourself, right? That's not what these questions are. These questions are duplicitous, as Jesus says. They're here to trap him, right? And so they come to Jesus with this lose-lose question. I wonder if they took their lead from Jesus, who asked them a lose-lose question last week. I wonder if they thought, two can play at this game. We've got him. He gave us that lose-lose question, we felt like idiots. Let's make him feel like an idiot, okay? And they think it's lose-lose, because either Jesus is going to get in trouble with the Jewish people, because he says something that supports the Romans, who are occupying Jerusalem, Or he's going to get in trouble with the Romans by saying to the Jews, no, you shouldn't pay your taxes. Lose, lose. Who are you going to tick off tonight, Jesus? Is it going to be the Romans or the Jews? Take your pick. We've got him. Have a look at what what they say, verse 21. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, that's not what they think, and that you do not show partiality but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius. Makes me think, right? Did Jesus not have one of his own? I wonder. Maybe he didn't. You get them for working. I don't know that Jesus is working right now. Show me a denarius, Jesus said, whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to caesar what is caesar's and to god what is god's they were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public and astonished by his answer they became silent rather than lose lose jesus smacks down everybody jesus should we pay taxes sure of course you should, look at the coin, Caesar's face is on it. It's his face, it's his image, he's the one that stamped on the denarius and it says on the denarius, what? Son of God, give that to Caesar. And it was a really jerky thing that the Romans did, they, they kind of knew how to occupy a nation, right? That when the Jews came to their temple to have to pay the Roman tax... They were only allowed to pay with the denarius, with Caesar's image on it, to remind them every time, that's who you're paying, the guy whose face is on the coin. So Jesus says, yeah, sure, honour the emperor, pay your taxes. The money belongs to him, right? But there's an implicit question, an implicit challenge in what Jesus says. Because he doesn't just say, yeah, sure, pay your taxes. What does he say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, the coin. Give to God what is God's. And the question is, what is God's? Well, it's this lovely little picture because if Caesar's image is stamped on the coin and so you give the coin back to Caesar, what is it that has God's image stamped on it that you're meant to give to God? Well, for them and for any astute Bible reader, what you have ringing in your ears is what we've read in the last few weeks, that God made humanity in his own image. That people are stamped with the image of God. You have the inscription of God's image stamped on your whole being, made in his image to reflect his character and to bring him glory. And so what is it that you as someone made in the image of God, stamped with his image all through your personhood, what is it that you're meant to give back to God? It's not the coin in your back pocket, it's not a day's wage, it's not a portion of who you are, it is your whole being that is meant to belong to God. It is your whole being made in God's image that you are meant to give back to him in worship and in service. In order to bring him glory and reflect his character to the world, give your money to the emperor, Jesus says, but give yourself in worship to the God who has made you in his image. So there's our first question for tonight Who do you honour? Where to be honourable citizens? respecting and participating in and contributing to our society. But we're to honour God with all that we are and all that we have. Who will you honour? Second question, to which age do you belong? And this is, again, they come to Jesus expecting to trap him, right? It's some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, who came to Jesus with another question, verse 27. This is another group of religious elite who don't like what Jesus is doing in challenging their system, in questioning their motives, and in attacking their power base, as it were, at the temple. The Sadducees have this expectation that the kingdom of God was going to be just like the kingdom that they were already in without some of the the obstacles and barriers. They thought that life in the kingdom of God was just going to be like life in Jerusalem, except without the Romans, with a little bit more freedom and a little bit more power than the power they already enjoyed. They thought there was a lot of continuity between their life now and their life in the kingdom of God. And so they come to Jesus, again, thinking that they're going to puzzle him. And these questions are only puzzling if you think that the kingdom of God looks exactly like the kingdom of this world. If you think the values of the kingdom of God and the shape of the kingdom of God are exactly like the kingdom of this world. These questions are only puzzling if you think that if your vision of life goes no further than the structures and moments of this age. If you think that there's nothing more to life than what you can see and touch and taste and smell. If there's nothing more than what we have right here in front of us, then these questions are puzzling. But if life is much bigger than that, if the universe is much richer than that, if there is another age, an age to come, then this question is not puzzling. They asked the question about Leverite marriage which is part of the Old Testament and it was provided for in order to see that widows would be cared for and family lines would continue. So we have that lovely picture of, of Leveret marriage in uh, the book of Ruth, when Ruth and Boaz get married, right? That's what was happening there. And so the Sadducees think that they're showing Jesus how stupid the resurrection is. Jesus, let's show, we want to show you how dumb this idea is that there is a resurrection from the dead and a life in the age to come. And we're going to point out how dumb it is by this picture of marriage where this poor widow whose husband dies who's then married to his brother who then dies and there's seven brothers and it's this awful story of a very long-living woman who's married seven times whose immune system also seems to keep outliving this family, this fragile family of brothers this immunocompromised brotherhood picked the wrong family to marry into. You've married seven brothers and they've all died. What a tragedy. Whose wife is she when she strolls into heaven? Right? She walks into heaven, there's seven blokes lined up there. Like, who, whose husband? Who's, which husband does she pick? Do they have a roster? What do, what's going on? <laughs> no, thankfully, is the answer. Jesus says you've got a very small view of reality. Pick it up with me at verse 34. Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage and they can no longer die for they are like the angels they are God's children since they are children of the resurrection but in the in the account of the burning bush even Moses showed that the dead rise for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob he's not the God of the dead but of the living for to him all are alive it's an interesting question isn't it what does marriage look like in the new creation Right? Will you know your spouse? I hope so. I remember Bishop Paul Barnett many years ago when someone asked him about this question, you know, what will be our relationship to our spouse in heaven? Paul Barnett said, I don't know, but my wife and I have made arrangements to at least sit together. (laughs) I think that's a good plan. What does marriage look like in the new creation? It won't exist because marriage is momentary. Marriage is meant to be a momentary, this age picture of our union to Jesus in the age to come, forever and ever. Marriage is of great value. It is is a good thing, but it is a limited good. It is not an ultimate good. It's not something to be idolized. It's not something to be held up as this ultimate good right? The ultimate pinnacle of human life. No. It is a momentary good, a very good thing for this life, an important foundational structure of our communal life in this world, but it is not eternal. Marriage in this moment is meant to point to the eternal marriage which is between Christ and his church. And in the age to come, united to Jesus We will have all the companionship and intimacy that we could ever ask for, totally satisfied in our relationship with Jesus forever, that marriage is of no point. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection and so they didn't understand what life in Jesus' kingdom was all about. Jesus points them to the fact that the resurrection is stitched in into the very fabric of the universe and what God is expecting to happen at the end of the age and it's always been the case which is why Moses a long long time after Abraham Isaac and Jacob died Moses can say that God is the God of those patriarchs in the present tense he is the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob he's not he was it's not that he was the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob He is currently, because he is the God of the living and he is the God who who overarches time and space. That life in this world is so much more than what you can see and taste and touch and smell. And it's interesting that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Why would you need to? When you have all the power and you have all the privilege, when you have all the wealth, when you have everything that this life has to offer, it's very easy to dismiss the life of the world to come. What more could I need? What more could there be? I have it all now. Not so the people that they exploit. Not so the people even in our day who have nothing. For whom it's a lot easier to believe that there is a life to come. Who need the hope of the resurrection. And so we're reminded in the life of the Sadducees that sometimes it's a disadvantage to have everything that this life has to offer. That so often is the case that Jesus says it's a disadvantage to be powerful and wealthy to be successful, to have a reputation. It can be a disadvantage to think that you have everything in this life that the world has to offer. So you have no need of the life in the world to come. Jesus says that's a very dangerous place to be. And he challenges you to think, what age, to what age do you belong? Are you a child of the resurrection considered worthy of taking part in the age that is to come? And are you more concerned about that identity, about that belonging, about that future, than you are about the things of this life, the marriages and the wealth, the privilege and the position? which age do you belong? Third question, who do you call Lord? Jesus kind of continues to come at them with this picture of you have too small a view of life and the world, you think that everything's limited to time and space. Jesus comes at them with that question by saying, uh, why is it in verse 41 that the Messiah is the son of David? Why is it said that Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And Jesus is challenging their picture, their very fixed picture of lineage in time and space, of genealogies. The great King David, that he was promised a son who would sit on his throne forever. But the Sadducees' picture of sonship meant that a son could never be greater than the father. A son would always honour the father. A father would never honour the son in the same way. And yet Jesus says, King David, the greatest calls his son who is to come, Lord. If David, in prophetic hope, is calling Jesus Lord, well, that must make Jesus even greater than David. Jesus, the king of kings, the eternal son, much bigger than their nationalistic hopes, much bigger than just the lineage of the nation of Israel. The Messiah is David's Lord, the one who would be the ultimate son, the ultimate king over God's kingdom. I wonder if the Apostle Peter has this incident in mind when he goes to the same Psalm, Psalm 110 in the book of Acts after Jesus' resurrection. So Luke writes a sequel, right, to this gospel account in the book of Acts, And early on in the book of Acts, they're gathered again in Jerusalem, and Peter talks about the risen Jesus. Listen to these words from Acts chapter 2. Peter says this, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, Peter says, Let all Israel be assured of this God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is the only chosen Savior King, he is judge and ruler and he will one day return in glory to hold the world to account and to save those who have trusted in him. So who, Jesus challenges the religious leaders, who do you think is Lord? The one that great King David pointed to? Even Jesus, the eternal son. The king of God's kingdom. The one before whom every knee will bow who do you call lord final question will you will you genuinely serve the savior king look at verse 45 while all the people were listening jesus said to his disciples beware of the teachers of the law they like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and, for a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Now, the picture of the teachers of the law—they used to walk in these flowing robes that would, they would look like swans, swanning about the temple, right? They would sit up on the stage in front of everyone with their backs against the Ark of the Covenant in this position of authority like we have everything to say and nothing to hear. They wanted all the places of honour at banquets and yet it's all an empty show. It is all self-righteous hypocrisy. It is a shell of religious fakery. There's nothing there. And actually, what is there is evil because they devour widows' houses, and even their prayers are just a show. The teachers of the law who knew God's word should have known that God loves orphans and widows and calls his people to protect and care for them. And the religious leaders were meant to provide for widows and provide for orphans. Those people who do not have social security, who do not have superannuation, those people who do not have a job to go to, those people who do not have a future and a home. And instead of providing for them, these religious leaders devour them. It's awful when you read the history books too of what they used to do. To a powerless widow with no recourse, with nothing you know, to claim on their own no job to go to, no superannuation, no social security. They would just literally walk into her house and say, this is ours. And providentially, as Jesus speaks about the empty show, the shell of hypocrisy, the self-righteous depravity of these religious leaders, he looks up and he sees the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury, but he also sees a poor widow who puts in two very small copper coins worth nothing. She's probably sat outside the temple gates begging for the whole day just so she could get something that she could then contribute Instead of taking it and living on it, she gives it at the temple in worship of God. I give you my everything, which is what Jesus told people to do at the beginning of our passage. Give to God what is God's. I give you my everything, she says. And in the economy of God's kingdom... Those two worthless copper coins were worth so much more than all the riches that the wealthy were putting in the box. Because God cares about the heart. It's like that picture of Oprah Winfrey giving away a million dollars. Oh, wow, Oprah. (laughs) A million dollars. That's a day's wage for Oprah, right? Day's wage. That's worthless. Genuine honour, genuine faith, genuine value in what this poor woman gives, her worthless coins. But that's so much more than the worthless faith of the religious hypocrites. It's a picture, too that this woman's faith of greater worth than gold was in the fact that there is a resurrection to the age to come. That there is something way more valuable, there is treasure in heaven, that there are greater possessions to be gained in the kingdom of light than any wealth or honour you could ever get in this life. And she banks it all on God keeping his promises and his King, the Messiah, bringing in the life of his kingdom forever. During the week, I saw a Christian leader who should know better say something publicly that was just really stupid. She said that your promotion in this life, how high you get, is directly related to how godly you are. Jesus' picture throughout the Gospels, time and time again, and here in this passage, is exactly the opposite. That how godly you are very rarely has anything to do with how high you've progressed in terms of status and power and prosperity in this life and has everything to do with humbly giving your life in genuine service of Jesus God's only chosen king might God promote you in this life and you be godly at the same time sure can happen but like we've already said more times than not Jesus says it's a disadvantage to have everything this life has to offer because it can start to make you think that you don't need the life to come. And so how are you tracking with Jesus tonight? As he puts you on trial, as he comes to you and says, who will you honour with your life? The answer is, Who made you in his image? Honour him. Jesus says, to which age do you belong? Are you so investing in the things of this age that you're going to miss out on the age to come? That's a raw deal. Better to miss out on everything in this life and gain Jesus forever. To which age do you belong? Who will you call Lord? Will you bow your knee to Jesus, the eternal son of God's eternal kingdom? Will you serve him with genuine faith in humility as you offer him everything in service because of who he is and because of what he's done? I'm going to pray that we might. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for Jesus that he doesn't muck around and that he tells us what we need to hear. We thank you that he doesn't leave us comfortable but that he cuts us to the heart to reveal the truth of our desires and the reality of our sin and our need of a saviour We thank you, Father, that he is that saviour. That he is the all-supreme king and the all-sufficient saviour that we so desperately need and you so graciously provide. Please keep us from attaching our hearts to the things of this age instead of to Jesus and the age to come. And may we give to you everything you deserve our whole lives in worship and service of your kingdom because that's what Jesus deserves. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.